first, <clears throat> first reading is uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 22. Oh, right. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord God, to the Lord your God belongs the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord has set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods, and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is the one you praise. He is your God, who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your ancestors who went down into Egypt were 70 in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. <clears throat> and the New Testament reading is Galatians chapter 2. Paul accepted by the apostles. <clears throat> then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running, and had not been running, my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and that they, to the circumcised, 
All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. When Cephas, or Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow the Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the word of God. Thanks, Brenda. Oh, I'm okay, thank you. I've got a magic one. Thanks. Morning, everyone. Good morning if you're online. Well, brothers and sisters, here we are. We're working our way through Galatians. The title of uh, this morning's sermon is From Our Imagination to His Image, and this is the third of three in part one, the gospel of a crucified Messiah. And we're going to look at both readings today, the one from Deuteronomy and the one from Galatians, and we're going to do a deep work. So um, strap in. Um, have you heard of Narcissus? Greek mythology. There's uh, a character uh, that was written about over uh, many years by many different authors. And uh, basically the story is that there was, um, there was a god and an nymph and they got together, they had this um, child called Narcissus and he was beautiful, most handsome. And everybody fell in love with him, but he just didn't find anybody with whom he fell in love until eventually he saw his handsome reflection in a pool 
And uh, if we just move on to the next slide, thanks, Phil. You'll see a little quote here from um, the version written by Ovid in The Metamorphosis. He was captivated by himself. He believed his reflection to be a beautiful spirit, and he was unable to tear himself away. And every time he reached out to try and you know, grasp his own reflection, of course, it never quite worked out. And anyway, long story short, it was, it was hopeless. In the end, he died of starvation. Um, ignorant of his own obsession, Narcissus had fallen in love with with his own image. And the tendency that we have is to try and remake God in our own image and lose sight of who God really is. And we lose sight of who we really are, that we are creatures made in his image, but made to glorify God on his terms. And as I was reading this week, I picked up actually a really good book, um, Donald Robinson, The Selected Works and Appreciation, number of authors reflecting on some of the writings of um, Don Robinson, a former uh, Anglican Archbishop here in Sydney. And uh, a mate of mine from my year at college, George Athos, wrote this really cool um, piece in there. Um, I'm as guilty of, uh, of this as the next man, but I very often think about the Bible as God's love letter to us. But George picks it up and says, it's actually for us. It was written in context. And so very often we forget about the context of the people to whom the Word of God was written. And so we're going to do some deep work in reflecting on that in such a way that I hope we get our eyes lifted from ourselves to the one who is worthy of our attention and all glory, honor, and praise. Now, if you're watching online and we've switched to the camera angle, thanks Darren, here, uh, you will see on the platform that it says one gospel. Isn't this beautiful? wasn't here last week. We had a little delay in delivery, but well done to those guys who got it here. That's the title of this sermon series. And um, if then Darren cuts in close, you'll notice that um, we just get the E and the G and the O, and that word spells, yeah. So that was an intentional juxtaposition, because rather than focusing on ourselves, we want to have our focus lifted to the one gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, today's Mother's Day, and um, we celebrate mothers. We all have or have had mothers, and some of us will be rejoicing in motherhood today. I know for some of us, as we've uh, been reminded by shame, um, there will be some sadness. But we are growing up in a world in which motherhood and fatherhood are God's good gifts. But the contemporary gender ideology seeks to blur these clear lines of identity. And I was prompted to think about this again when I was reading uh, a blog by a fellow called Mark Dury, who's an Anglican theologian, I commend his writing, uh, who was observing, as I've noticed, that in England, some clergy are starting to use gender-neutral pronouns for God. In fact, some clergy have referred this matter to the church's liturgical commission saying that we must start to use gender-neutral pronouns in the church, and that's quite a significant shift, although it has been happening um, amongst Anglicans for decades, the use of inclusive language. But now, clergy are asking to change God to she or they, or mother alongside father or even just parent. Requests are being made of the commission to allow reference to God in a non-gendered way. 
This is one of the issues that's arising within our denomination, a corruption of the Word of God that has led us to gather together as a movement of GAFCON just recently. And um, whilst I'd hoped that you would have this last week, it has arrived now, um, the Southern Cross, can I encourage you if you haven't got a copy already, uh, to grab one, take it away. There's some really good stuff in terms of summary of the gathering of GAFCON, and particularly when this falls into the center page, there's a really good article by our own Archbishop of Sydney, Kanishka Raphael, entitled Why GAFCON Matters. Can I encourage you at the very least to read that one for your encouragement, for some of the understanding of the history, and for a sense of direction moving forward. But why am I saying all this? Because it's just an example of the ego at play. We move from the one gospel for the glory of God's Son, Jesus, to a self-centered way of seeing things and of the making of gods in our own image, there is no end. In fact, that's the way in which every single man-made religion works. It focuses on self. But God has revealed himself in his word in the Bible for all time, for everyone. He has shown us that he is one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that his church is his bride. And he has made some important distinctions in creation male and female. He's also made observations through, as we see in Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 3, 28, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, but all by his grace to be united in one gospel. So as we come to this text and we consider our one gospel for freedom forever, that's the big idea of the series, I particularly am going to pray that the Lord would help us to see the idea for this sermon from Galatians chapter 2.20, that one gospel is faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Would you pray with me? Father God, this is uh, a day on which we long by your grace to again lift our gaze from reflecting upon ourselves individually together even as wonderfully and beautifully made as we are as humanity, to recognize and honor the one who is the creator, our Lord and God. We have been made in your image, Father, and yet there is one who is the very image, the exact representation of your being, the Lord Jesus, your Son, our Savior and Lord. And so our hope and prayer is that as we engage with your word together in the presence of your spirit, our teacher and our guide, that we may increasingly reflect him in his image for our good and for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have a look with me. Uh, we're going to put the readings on screen. And uh, the first idea of three is one gospel from one God. This is Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 22. And here Moses is writing to the people of God, having been saved out of life in Egypt in slavery, given his word by which to live, about to enter into the rest of his land. Moses says now to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God expect? of you except to fear him and to walk in his ways. And for the people of God in that day, this preserved nation, why did God compel his precious people to fear him and walk in his ways? 
because his law is good. And obedience to God's ways is best for their good. And it would showcase the character of God within the people of Israel, the Jews, to the watching nations to bring him glory. Wasn't anything special about that people? I've said this before and I'll say it again, but it's contingent upon a little translation for the joke to work. The word in Hebrew for nations is goyim. And it is sometimes asked how odd of God to choose the Jews because there was nothing special about them. But the retort is not odd of God, goyim, annoyim. For the glory of God, he would choose this ragtag people who would walk in his ways. And verses 14 to 15, we see the heavens, indeed the highest heavens belong to you, Lord God. The Lord God was devoted to your fathers, says Moses, who loved them and chose their descendants after him. You see, God had made these promises to father Abraham back in Genesis 12. Promises that would extend through his seed, both to Jew and to the Gentiles. And these promises would show how good God is, not show how good people are, because there's no room for boasting as a Jew. That's what the letter to the Galatians is about. And there's no room for boasting as a Gentile because that is what the letter to the Romans is about. And God says to his people then, verse 16 to 18, therefore circumcise your hearts and see the great, mighty, awesome God not the outward sign of inclusion in God's covenant people made in the flesh because in the body you know there was the circumcision a sign of membership not even the belief in the Sabbath or the behavior in being kosher but rather sinking his gracious enabling to have hearts after his own heart for what it is to be greaty uh, greaty great mighty and awesome is to show justice and inclusion and compassion and God, through his people, the Jews, would do just this. Verses 19 to 22, you must love the foreigner because you too were foreigners in the land of Egypt. Remain faithful to the Lord your God and worship him as your praise. He is your God. And remember, your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 in all, and now he has made you as numerous as the stars of the sky. You see, this extraordinary character of the one gospel of God is that his grace and his mercy persist in other words, they did not deserve his grace and mercy, but God lavished it upon them as gift. Today, we do not deserve his grace and mercy, but God lavishes it upon us as his gift because God's grace, the gift we're given, which is his forgiveness and his mercy, the condemnation we do not receive, is the same for Jew and Gentile in one gospel, fulfilled in one person who is his son, Yeshua Messiah, Jesus Christ. And this is the background that enables us now to come to better understand Galatians chapter 2. My second point, one gospel for both Jew and Gentile. Now you'll remember, of course, from the last two weeks, Paul is writing to followers of Jesus Messiah in Galatia. He welcomes them in grace and peace. And you'll recall that his gospel to the Gentiles was received directly from the Lord Jesus. You remember Paul, mighty Saul, persecuting the church of Christ. And then he meets the resurrected Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, Acts 9. And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? 
And, and Paul is then reduced to puny Paul. And he was given the gospel by the Lord Jesus. And this gospel he preached for decades, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And in fact, was fulfilling the mandate of Israel that God had given to Israel by shining the light of God's grace to the Gentiles. Now, we'll come back to that in our later sermons. But remember that Paul did not consult with the disciples in Jerusalem. He had a little visit. He did a little Airbnb with Peter very briefly, and then he kind of high-fived James on the way out. But then he went off for 14 years. The first time that they got together properly to kind of compare notes on the gospel, to see the orthodoxy in one gospel. Thanks, Phil. Verses 1 to 3. After 14 years, I, puny Paul, went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, who was a a Jew from Cyprus. And I took Titus, who was a believing Gentile, along also. And I went in response to a revelation from God and met privately with those esteemed as leaders, the apostles that the Lord Jesus had established in Jerusalem. And he says, I presented to them the one gospel that I preached among the Gentiles to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. It's not that Paul didn't have confidence in the gospel that Jesus had given him, but it was rather like coming along and just making sure that the alignment on the train tracks was true, that their watches were calibrated. And he says at that point, yet not even Titus who was with me was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek, a Gentile convert in Jerusalem. Now hold that thought, because here we see the distortion of one gospel, verse 4. This matter arose, excuse me, Because some false believers, that is law-focused Jews, had infiltrated our, that is true fulfilled Jews, followers of Messiah, they'd infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. You know what a spy is, right? A spy is somebody who kind of gets in unnoticed. But Paul noticed them. Why did he notice them? Because he used to be one. He knows what their M.O. is. He knows how they work. And here he sees these spies, and he picks up on them and says that if these folks who are coming in, these Judaizers, these false believers, start talking about the need for law observance to be justified before God, then they are making us slaves once more. We, verse 5, true fulfilled Jews did not give in to them, these law-focused Jews, for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, addressing the Galatians, believing Gentiles. Do you see what's going on here? Very clear distinction between Jew and Gentile here. As for those who were held in high esteem, that is Jesus' apostles, the Jerusalem leaders who were followers of Messiah, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. That is, there's one gospel. What Paul's saying here is that the gospel that he had from Jesus and the gospel they had from Jesus was one gospel. But Paul had a commission to take that gospel to the Gentiles, and they had a commission to take that gospel to the Jews. And these false believers were imposing practices that were relevant to neither. There is one gospel for both Jew and Gentile, verses 7 to 8. On the contrary, he says, they, true fulfilled Jewish Jerusalem leaders, apostles of Jesus. See, I'm really unpacking this today, right? There's not a lot of illustrations and fun stuff, I know, but I think this is so important for us to get our heads around. 
So on the contrary, they, they recognized that I've been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, just as Peter had been trusted with it to the circumcised, the Jews. For God who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, the Jews, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. One gospel grasped together. In fact, Paul goes on to say that the unity in this one gospel for both Jew and Gentile, thanks Phil, verse 9, James and Kephas and John, those esteemed as pillars, you remember these guys, James, Peter and John, Jesus' disciples, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship and they recognized the grace given to me and they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they go to the circumcised or the Jews. You see, there is one gospel for both Jew and Gentile, lest there be any confusion. Same gospel, one gospel, no ego. All they asked, verse 10, was that we should continue to do the remembering of the poor, the very thing I've been eager to do all along. God has a heart for those who are marginalized, doesn't he? He wants justice for those who are in poverty. And it's a good and right thing when we as contemporary followers of the Lord Jesus look out for the marginalized and take care of those who are in poverty in our community. And there's great blessings of organizations like Anglicare and Ardfer and others that, that, and, and Compassion where we can do real good in Jesus' name. But I actually don't think this is primarily about that. Because even though James, in his letter, James chapter 2, verse 17, says faith without deeds is effectively dead, so clothe and feed people, which is all good and right, the deepest spiritual debt and need is the one for salvation to know the love of Jesus Messiah. And now that the Jews in Jerusalem had given this gospel to the Gentiles, the biggest debt of love is for the Gentiles then to share the gospel back to those Jews who don't yet recognize Messiah. I think that's the key thrust of where this is going. Those who are spiritually impoverished, remember them, invest in them. And I think the expression of God's grace through spirit-filled Gentiles today to beloved Jews is not always the first thing on our agenda, isn't that right? Do we think about the debt that we owe to our Jewish neighbors and having the good news of Jesus Messiah? Can I encourage us to be stimulated to pray for the good of Jerusalem and Jewish people around the world? There's 14 million Jewish people around the world, half of them pretty much living in Israel, half of them pretty much in uh, New York, but a good number of them, 100,000 plus here in Australia. It's not always our forced first thought in terms of ministry and mission. Great organizations that do faithful, solid work there. CMJ, CWI, Christian Witness to Israel once upon a time, now IMJP, lots of acronyms, Celebrate Messiah. But if you want to know more about these organizations, we're going to put some links in in the weekly update this week, and you can come and talk to me or Shane afterwards, and we'd love to point you in that direction as the Lord leads your heart to give back to those who were the pioneers by God's grace of the gospel, one gospel. Thirdly and finally, Peter's hypocrisy and Paul's humility. Um, and we're going to go now into verses 11 to 21. There's this funny little dance here with names. Who's Kephas? Peter, yeah. Because it means the same thing. Peter, rock, Greek. Kephas, rock, Aramaic. Do you know, I've read quite a lot of stuff on this and I still can't work out why Paul makes these changes. 
Like there doesn't seem to be one mind or any real clarity. If you know, if the Spirit has given you an insight into this, can you come and tell me? Because here I am without a clue. Um, but here, when Kephas, we're talking about Peter though, came to Antioch, not Jerusalem, but when he came to Antioch where Paul was, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because, because he stood condemned. For certain men came from James, allegedly. Uh, before they came, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But then they, law-focused Jews, arrived. Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to this law-focused Jews circumcision group. Can you see what's happening here? You know, Peter would... Be Peter, bold, Acts 2, empowered by the Spirit, preaching the gospel of the risen Lord Jesus. And then what happens when these Judaizers, these spies come along, is he becomes the old Peter. Do you remember the old Peter? Peter who started to walk boldly on the water when the Lord Jesus called him, but then lost his faith and started to sink. Peter who said, I'm going to die with you, Jesus, if you go and get crucified. But then, of course, when he's asked by a little girl in the courtyard, denies he even knows Jesus, the cock crows, and he remembers that he's become pretty weak and frail. find it a great comfort to see Peter like this, don't you? Because <laughs> it's just like you and me. He's weak. Verse 13, the other Jews, the true fulfilled Jews, joined him, Peter, in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Well, there's a flipping turn up for the books. Barnabas, the great encourager. Even Barnabas was led astray here. But when I, Paul, verse 14, saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Kephas in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? You see, Peter and Paul no longer were required to do these customs once they've recognized the grace of God in Messiah. How on earth could it be that they could agree that some of these traditional Jewish customs would be imposed on Gentiles when they never had the law? It's a crazy notion, isn't it? Saved by grace, oh, but do this, something you've never known that you would have needed to do or indeed did. See, the hypocrisy that's described by Peter here isn't the contemporary use of the word hypocrisy. You know what hypocrisy means today? Uh, today? Like, do what I say, not what I do? It, it wasn't like that because the original meaning of the word actually came from um, acting and actors up front would have masks on and what they would do is they put a mask on, play a character and speak from under the mask and become somebody they were not. So sometimes you'd see actors with happy faces on the mask but they'd have sad faces underneath and vice versa but it was speaking out from under the mask, behaving like an actor, in fact literally under judgment. So when we're talking about these things that were signs for the Jews that they were amongst God's people, circumcision in the body, Sabbath in belief, kosher food in behavior, that was all for the Jews, but no longer. They had all been fulfilled by Messiah. But for the Gentiles, they'd never had anything like that. So to start bringing that in to the Gentiles and then withdrawing from the Gentiles was just hypocrisy. And Paul speaks in humility. How is it he's speaking in humility when he's up shirt-fronting Peter? It's because he comes from a position where he recognizes the need for both Jew and Gentile to receive the grace of God, which is unpacked in these verses 15 to 16. Have a look at this. And if there's any way in which to depart from any sense of ego or boasting to the one gospel, this is it. He says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, know that a person's not justified by the works of law, 
but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, true fulfilled Jews, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus, so that we, true fulfilled Jews, may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of law. Now, just as an aside here, that translation is the NIV. But if you look at a number of other translations, they say the faithfulness of Christ. So, so this would then read, we, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And now we say to ourselves, well, which is it, right? Are we justified by the grace of God and the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ, dying on a cross for our sins and giving us forgiveness? Or are we justified, or they justified, actually specifically the Jews, but same, same today, by the faith that we have in the grace of God? And hence we come up with this little phrase, justified by grace through faith. Sometimes we say justified by faith, but that's a kind of truncating of by grace through faith. Both translations work. Loads of scholars have written loads of stuff about this, but at the end of the day, I think God left it in for a good reason. Jews, Gentiles, saved by grace, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ through faith, faith in him and his finished work. But notice what it says in verse 16, not by works of law, because by the works of law, no one will be justified. Who is justified by works of law? No one. That's what it says, doesn't it? But who is justified by works of law? Well, there's only one who brings justification through fulfilling the works of law, who fulfilled the law uh, and the prophets. Who was that? The Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the one who justifies. He is the one who declares righteous. So there's a binary economy here regarding being right with God. You're either righteous and justified or you're unrighteous and condemned. And for the Jews, that meant faith in the grace of God in Jesus, Yeshua, Messiah. And for the Gentiles, it meant faith in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And you notice how this is humility, that it's all about him. And it's never about Jew, Gentile, us. And Paul goes on to say in verses 17 to 18, but if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also amongst the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would become a law breaker. And again, this refers to Paul as a Jew. He could not return to the law to be justified. If he can't return to the law, how could it possibly be for the Gentiles? And Paul shows us the first installment in Galatians of how one gospel works. And here it is. He says, for through the law, I die to the law so that I might live for God. For I have been crucified with Christ and no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. He who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could have been gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If law had been the way for the Jew, Christ's death was for nothing. Jews only get it right with God by trusting in God's Son, who is the only one who fulfilled the law. Gentiles only get right with God by trusting in God's Son. Same gospel. Actually, same problem as well, because both are in slavery to the sinful foundations of the world, but we'll get to that in another sermon in the future. It's only by life in the Spirit of God that either 
or both Jew and Gentile can live rightly. For the Spirit only draws near to a person who repents of their sin and turns to Yeshua, Jesus. Because we've been made in His image and we cannot make God in our image. He did not mean for us to do so. He called us to live by faith in His Son who loved us and gave Himself for us. And so that's the end of the story. What does it look like, brothers and sisters, for you and I to reflect the image of God? Our inclination still, even for those of us who have the Spirit of God, is to be drawn to the narcissus in each of us, to look to our own reflection. When we try and remake God in our own image, we lose sight of who He really is, and we lose sight of who we really are, the fact that we've been made to glorify Him. And whether we're lay people in the seats or whether we're clergy who have collars on or whether we're bishops, we must respect God and God's ways and the language that he uses for himself and for us. We're not to follow contemporary ideas that are contradictory to his word. We use the language for God that God himself uses in the Bible. Father, he and anything else is a devaluation of God's self-revelation in his world to suit contemporary gender ideology, which will not stand. We, brothers and sisters, must work hard to maintain the distinctions that God has made concerning our world, for there is one gospel. It is a gospel both for the Jew and for the Gentile. It is a gospel both for male and free. And around the world it remains a gospel, uh, sorry, a male and female. Around remains a gospel for both slave and free. We trust how Jesus speaks of his heavenly father in the gospels as good because God is good. And he wants good for all his people. And he wants us to be agents of good in his world. Brothers and sisters, how do we need his help for that? Let me lead us in prayer that we would do just that for his glory. Father God, when we consider the good that we can do, we know uh, above all that it is to bring glory to you. For this is the thing for which each and every one of us was designed, <laughs> Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, to be fully satisfied in the love that you've lavished upon us through the one who is your son, whom we can know personally. Thank you, Father, that he has achieved everything necessary for us to be in right relationship with you. May it be that we would continue to live in faith and obedience in your strength for your glory as your people, just as we're doing right now. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.